So before we jump into today's episode, it's important that we acknowledge that this conversation was recorded on the land of the Tongva and Chumash peoples. Panelists joined us from colonized lands throughout North America. We recognize the Tongva, Chumash, and all indigenous nations, tribes, and peoples for being historical and continual caretakers of these lands. All right, I'll count you in. Three, two, one. Greetings, Ash family, and welcome back to another episode of the Ash Presidential Podcast focused on humanizing higher education. I am your co-host, Dr. Royal Johnson, Associate Professor of Higher Ed and Social Work at the University of Southern California and Director of Student Engagement at the USC Race and Equity Center. Shout out to my colleagues at the USC Race and Equity Center for being a co-sponsor of this My co-host really needs no introduction, but allow me to introduce her anyway, the Dr. Felicia Commodore. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm your other co-host, Dr. Felicia Commodore. I'm Associate Professor at Old Dominion University in Higher Education and Community College Programs. It is early in the morning, and I am a human in higher education, and so... I am still waking up, but I am here, and that's what's important. So we are excited to keep um, the conversations we've been having going around humanizing higher education. Today, we're going to be having um, a very timely and important conversation where we're going to be talking about some of the conversations that's been going on around critical race theory, education, and thinking about different perspectives of that um, from people who are uh, navigating that on the ground in the uh, K through 12 educational system, and from some scholars who are C- CRT scholars and uh, educational scholars, we're really excited to have this conversation. Uh, and so I'm going to turn it back over to my co-host so he can talk about who's going to be joining us today. Yes, join us in welcoming our very, 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 very special guest, uh, Dr. Lori Patton Davis, who is professor and department chair at the Ohio State University, my alma mater. Shout out to Ohio State. Uh, Khadijah Brown, president of Berkeley Unified School District Board of Education. Dr. Kamika Royal, associate professor of urban education at Loyola University, Maryland. Okay, so we start off every episode with this icebreaker. We call it this or that. You're gonna, we're gonna give you two options. You just pick between one, only just one. Just one. So, Lori, as a fellow beehiver, I know um, this this one can be difficult for some folks, but I'm going to give you two things. Lemonade, the album, or Four, the album by Beyonce. Lemonade. Lemonade. Mm. All right, okay, okay. All right, Khadijah, I have a question for you. I know you are a, a girl from the Bay, and so the question is... The Golden State Warriors or the San Francisco 49ers? Definitely the Warriors. The Warriors all day long. (laughs) All right, Kamika. Yep. Max's or Delisandro's? Max's. Max's. I haven't had either, actually. We're on the hearing all day. That's right. I'm a Max's girl, so I'm, I'm down with this. Okay. Okay, so this question is for everyone. This one's going to shake some tables. Okay, we're going to see what happens. Boys to Men or New Edition? That's an intergenerational one. (laughs) New Edition? (laughs) Okay, Okay. all right. Uh, I said said boys. 
I, I feel like it's an unfair question. I think it depends on where you are, sort of, <laughs> the trajectory of your life. <laughs> <laughs> So for the sake of my childhood first concert, I would have to say new edition, but being the Philly joint, I can't, exactly. <laughs> I can't not ride for boys to men. That's right. Do? Rap for your people, Kaminga. I'm not mad at it. I have to. <laughs> so we're so glad that you all joined us for this conversation. We think it's so important. So as you know, the, over the past couple of years, there have been a number of uh, really coordinated uh, political attacks on critical race theory and other initiatives like the 1619 Project that ultimately aim to ban or restrict what is being taught in school classrooms and on college and university campuses. We've seen rallies organized. We've seen an executive order issued by a former president. We've seen legislation across a number of states that aim to do that. What is at the core of these attacks and what's really at stake for educational stakeholders is the essence of what we want to grapple with in this conversation. But before we jump into that, tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you've been engaged in and what humanizing education means to you. Uh, hi, everybody. I'm Lori Patton Davis. Uh, as uh, was mentioned in the introduction, I am a professor of higher education and student affairs and chair for the Department of Educational Studies at The Ohio State University, uh, also former ASH president. Um, a lot of how I conceptualize humanizing deals with, you know, one representation, like how, how do we do research, teaching, service, or whatever it is that we do that make people feel seen, uh, that disrupts uh, invisibility. A lot of that work focuses on uh, Black women and girls in education and in, in educational and social contexts, uh, also looking at campus diversity initiatives. Uh, a lot of my work is looked at, you know, cultural centers, um, looking at uh, LGBTQ populations, uh, particularly at uh, HBCUs, um, and then uh, exploring, you know, how students develop in college. So that, that's sort of the research agenda, but, uh, you know, whether I am in the classroom or engaging in administrative work or uh, service to the profession, um, what's at the core um, technically is around humanizing and um, providing opportunities and, and, and partnerships so that people feel seen, that they feel heard. And that doesn't mean we come into a space and everybody just agrees and we're right. just one big happy, uh, happy family. But it means that people were able to show up as their full selves and they were able to, you know, voice concerns, opinions, thoughts, ideas, and, and that those things were heard and, um, uh, validated. Now, where humanize or what I just said, where that can be troubling, I think, is when there are opinions and perspectives brought to the table that expressly are oppressive in nature. So um, I will say that humanizing um, calls attention to the ways that, you know, when people come together, uh, you know, oppression can sometimes happen. And mm -hmm. so I'm very conscious and thoughtful about that and that I am awesome at meeting people where they are <laughs> and working across the aisle and all those things yeah. until I feel like you're trying to oppress me. And then that's, that's a problem. And that's sort of where mm -hmm. um, we kind of got to figure out, you know, what's next. Um, do we need to 
uh, absent this conversation and, you know, walk away and agree to disagree. Uh, but in all of this, I don't feel a need to be violent with someone. Mm -hmm. I don't feel a need to uh, try to harm somebody because they don't agree with my perspective. Uh, and so that's, that's how I think about educational experiences that you know, make people feel, mm -hmm. you know, whole and recognize their wholeness. Um, I'll stop there. Thank you. <laughs> um, hello, my name is Khadija Brown. I feel incredibly honored uh, to be here with you all today. So thank you for the invitation. Um, as I shared earlier, I have the honor of serving as the president uh, of the school board for Berkeley Unified School District in Berkeley, California. I am also a teacher and uh, the coordinator of a Black and African-American Student Achievement Initiative. Mm -hmm. So my whole work, my entire work yes. is about uh, humanizing people and about um, dismantling and demystifying uh, myths and untruths that lead to uh, dehumanizing people. Uh, my firm belief is that education levels the playing field, right? Education is what changes uh, the lives of people, especially uh, those who have a history of being underserved or underrepresented in education. And so uh, every day it is our job to, uh, you know, demystify those things that we were talking about earlier, but also to create avenues uh, mm -hmm. for students as well as educators uh, that are done in a way that is culturally responsive, um, that is, that focuses on criticality and, and what is happening in education to ensure uh, that we're both champions, but also critics of what is happening um, in education right now, um, as well as uh, making ensuring that we have a culture responsive pedagogy that ignites student engagement mm -hmm. and achievement throughout uh, schools and preparing educators with a roadmap to be successful. And so that is my uh, my whole work and, and what I do and my, my mission and what drives me uh, to ensure that we are continuing uh, to serve all of our students well in Berkeley Unified School District, but mm -hmm. specifically uh, those who have a history of being underserved. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wonderful. Good afternoon, I'm Kamika Royal. Um, I am, um, as was said in the introduction, Associate Professor of Urban Education at Loyola University, Maryland, which is located in Baltimore. Um, I am also on sabbatical for the Ooh, Shout out so to sabbatical. Am, <laughs> no jealousy yeah. over here. I am enjoying having a big smile with sabbatical. That's that glow we see. That's why you're glowing over there. I don't have to go back there until August 2023. So I'm very excited. I'm part of my own human, humanizing yes. myself. <laughs> um... You know, it's kind of interesting, this idea about humanizing education. I think about it more so in my work with students. Mm -hmm. um, but from a research perspective, so I just um, published my very first book, which I spent a very long time researching. Yes. Into the applause. Thank you, thank you. Black Educators and Public School Reform in Philadelphia. It looks at 50 years of school reform in Philly, I interrogated the Board of Education and School Reform Commission minutes. Um, mm -hmm. Some minutes, meeting minutes I know are close to Dr. Commodore's Oh, heart. I love that, I live for it, <laughs> live for it. Um, but also interviewed black educators and then sort of uh, corroborated the data with black newspaper accounts and mm -hmm. other newspaper accounts and things, right? So um, part of my research, which is always about black educators or urban educators in particular, 
and school reform and the politics of that reform, mm-hmm. sort of how they, how those two entities meet, mm-hmm. right? How one acts on the other, um, how they respond to one another, that sort of thing. It's always very important to me that I am trying to center the people who have been forced to the margins. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes that has been black educators. Um, but I also have to be honest, sometimes it's black educators doing the marginalizing. Mm, for sure. Mm-hmm. And so I have to be clear about that too. Um, when I think about my work with students, that's what like I, I think about in the context of the pandemic in particular, right? Or even pre-pandemic, I'm thinking about a student, um, a white student, I'm a black woman, y'all can't see me, I'm a black lady um, from from Philly in Baltimore. And I had a white student from New York um, who used the N-word in her final Mm. presentation in my class Mm. and had it projected on my front board and everything. Mm. And since I'm the only N-word in the room, um, I felt, you know, it felt weird, right? Mm -hmm. Especially since this was from a student who did not want to talk about anything around race at the beginning of the semester. Mm. And I'm like, well, you got to love this. You didn't want to talk about it at the beginning of the semester, but now you're projecting the N-word on on my board. And I think about her in this context because I remind myself that she is a young person, right? And my job is to teach her. Mm -hmm. And so even though I'm like, eh, I low-key feel like you gunning for me, I remove (laughs) myself from that and Mm -hmm. say, listen, this is a young person who wants to be a teacher. Um, I would rather she make this error now with me where I can help Mm -hmm. to get her together than she go, you know, into Baltimore City. And it may look very different then. And make that same comment where somebody may thump her, right? Right. So, but in that context, also, she invited her father down to the university to yell at me and tell me that I terrify his daughter, right? And so the whole, like, this is the tension I feel like constantly Mm -hmm. of trying to humanize this space for students who I'm trying to, even though they, many of them have been steeped in um, in understanding beliefs and traditions that would take my life mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. in a number of ways. Mm-hmm. My job is still to try to see their humanity mm-hmm. and try to show them um, not only mine, because I give the grade, like at some point they have to reconcile, <laughs> that, but also our most vulnerable yeah. Um, you know, the young people who, who the, the children they may one day teach or the parents who have very, who may not have the same, um, you know, insight or pull right. with, with my young people who become teachers. So it's a, it's a constant challenge. It's a dance. It's one that, um, that I happily take on though, especially like as COVID has happened, mm-hmm. you know, and just trying to just, even though, you know, people are like, oh, students are always trying to get over and, you know, I, maybe. But I'm also like, there's, they're also human beings, right? you know, who I had one this semester who lost both of his grandparents within two weeks of each other and just couldn't pull it together mm-hmm. for the rest of the semester. And I, my, I feel like my task is to figure out how do I advocate for him um, at this institution so that it's mm-hmm. not, you know, we're not acting like that doesn't matter. Right. I want to just amplify a point you said, the weight and responsibility of trying to see the humanity in students who refuse to see it in us and who Mm. are committed to the technologies of whiteness that seek to harm us. Like that is a that's a weight as a black educator, as a black woman educator, um, trying to train and prepare the next Mm -hmm. generation of folks to go out and do this work. I just wanted to amplify that, that 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 sits with me. Um, There's a lot of misinformation about critical race theory, intentionally, right? 
Lori, what is critical race theory? What is it not for folks who are listening? Oh, wow. Um, I don't think I could ever <laughs> articulate it as well as uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, but I'll try. Uh, <laughs> so um, to me, uh, and my use of critical race theory has been uh, a lens or a framework for understanding the dynamics between race, racism, power, and white supremacy, right? Um, there are multiple lenses that help us to understand these things. Critical race theory mm -hmm. is just one of them. And um, much of the earlier work around critical race theory, you know, stems from the, the legal field and has sort of traversed, you know, uh, into other uh, academic areas, namely education. And so um, we use it as a framework to better understand educational policies, um, not to call mm -hmm. people uh, not to call white people racist, but to understand the dynamics and mm -hmm. the maneuvering of whiteness and white supremacy. So to be able to look at something that is seemingly race neutral mm -hmm. and to identify the uh, components of it that actually um, reveal, you know, how racial disparities happen or how, uh, as um uh, Kimberly Crenshaw says how people fall through cracks, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and so that's my sense making of critical race theory. And one aspect of it is around um, challenging a historicism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's where uh, many uh, detractors <laughs> or folks who have issues with critical race theory um, uh, have sort of I don't know, uh, attempted to uh, engage in, you know, erasing history or uh, denying mm -hmm. uh, uh, the truth about history and placing critical race theory there. But again, critical race theory isn't the only theory mm -hmm. right. that um, uh, uh, encourages us uh, or insists on um, uh, racial accuracy, uh, 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 historical accuracy uh, around uh, things that have occurred in the country. So, mm -hmm. yeah. um, uh, th you know, that's a, a brief description of it. Of mm -hmm. course, it has tenants. I won't go into all of that. Anybody <laughs> can, you know, get a book or an article um, and read about that. And I think that's the thing about it. Critical race theory isn't something that would necessarily show up in a K through 12 school. Exactly. However, <laughs> in teacher preparation programs, where we're trying to help, you know, the overwhelming majority of um, uh, future teachers who are white women understand mm -hmm. uh, the, the racial histories um, that have sort of contributed to educational inequities that have contributed to why some students go to one school versus another school, mm -hmm. all of these pieces, they need to understand Absolutely. the history right. around uh, 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 segregate housing, uh, segregation and um, voting rights and all of these pieces that have an impact on education. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in, in that regard, you know, I don't, uh, I'm, I'm still unclear about why there's a challenge with teaching. Well, you know what? I'm not unclear. I'm being honest. But, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's important, I'll right. say, for, for colleges and schools of education who are training teachers, you know, if, if, we're, if we're not calling it critical race theory, they at least need to understand how race and racism work, right? Right. Um, they need to understand um, uh uh, how white supremacy is sort of rooted in most things, in everything, but that it's not just talking about concepts and giving definitions, but helping them to see what 
we have not been trained to see along, mm-hmm. you know, the educational pipeline mm-hmm. um, and, and to be able to see race and racism clearly um, right. and to be able to articulate um, uh, the, the challenges around um, race and racism. Yeah, I think that's great. And, and I'm so glad you brought up or highlighted that tenet of CRT of um, challenging the ahistoricism of things, right? And the way mm-hmm. we've been socialized within a white supremacist culture to understand things um, often void of the reality of racism and, and how that is systematic and systemic and structural. Um, and, and speaking of that, I wanted to um, uh, ask you a question, Dr. Royal. Um, we, you mentioned your recently released book, Not Paved for Us, Black Educators in Public School Reform in Philadelphia, where you chronicle some of these histories and challenge some of the ahistoricism around the public um, public school system, particularly in, in Philadelphia. And so I wanted to ask you, from your um, expertise and your vantage point, how do the attacks on CRT align with other efforts historically to restrict or ban racial truth-telling in schools and in scholarship? I think... Uh, that's a very interesting question. So I'm going to start out by thanking um, Dr. Patton Davis for using the, the word lens, right? Mm-hmm. That critical race theory is a lens. And I, the reason I appreciate that is because I'm wearing lenses, right? Like the, the, They're the very fly, by the way. way. <laughs> Thank you. I try to keep it together. But <laughs> we all are wearing certain lenses. Mm-hmm. And the question becomes, what lens um, are people seeing our work and our students and mm. even the, the discipline, the field mm-hmm. itself through, right? Mm. Um, CRT is just one of those lenses. Mm-hmm. So uh, everybody else, you're still wearing a lens. The question is, what is the lens? What? Mm. How are you viewing this sphere? How? What are you viewing it through? Um, how this sort of current moment aligns with previous moments, I think, it's a very interesting question. I'm thinking about, I mean, so I'm taking Philadelphia, for example, the 1960s, uh, there was a major protest on November 17th, 1967, mm. 3,500 black students from across the city who are now in their seventies, right? Mm. I, which they, they're my mother's age. Um, but they converged on the school district headquarters and said, we want black teachers. We mm. want um, black history classes. You know, there's all these things that we want. And the pushback then was physical and violent, right? So mm. there were police released and they're beating students at the headquarters and everything to some extent. So if you take that as a beginning point, because that sort of thing was happening in a lot of places around the country, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. New York, um, you had Ocean Hill, Brownsville, mm-hmm. um, you had mm-hmm. black educators saying like, hold on, we are tired of people from outside our community controlling the education that happens inside our community, right? Mm. I think depending on your location, because I, I often argue that context matters. Yes. And so how the conflict happens um, has a lot to do with the context, the local mm. context in which, you know, and who the players are and, and the racial identities and languages and who has power and the finances and all this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, 
in some ways, the things they were asking for, students in Philly were asking for in 1967. So for instance, this idea of having a black history curriculum, mm, uh, mm -hmm. that was adopted mm -hmm. in Philadelphia. It became part of the formal curriculum, a graduation requirement that you have to take an African-American history class to graduate yes. was adopted in 2005, right? Mm -hmm. So it took from 1967 until 2005. But all along there, what's also happening is that an Office of African-American uh, Studies was established in the school district, and then it was subsumed in the mm. Office of American uh, History and Studies, mm -hmm. right? So there's always like this dance where we're, we're having progress, but we're also moving back. Mm. I would say the attacks too, um, what becomes interesting is who's the face of the attack. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because if I if we stick with this example of Black history being something that was advocated for in 1967 in Philly, or and and you know they they never sort of let up. It was a constant thing. The person responsible for subsuming, for crushing that office of African American Studies actually came from the Bay. All right. God rest her soul, but it was Arlene Ackerman mm -hmm. who had been superintendent of schools in San Francisco and Washington D.C. Right, and part of who was a Black woman. Mm -hmm. came in with an agenda that was created by the Broad Foundation, right? Mm -hmm. And so what happens is she doesn't know the local context. She doesn't know. She doesn't mm -hmm. understand. She's like, hey, y'all, I'm just trying to combine offices and save money. What are you talking about? And mm -hmm. Black people are like, you're going to combine offices and save money on our backs? Mm -hmm. Like, this is something we've been fighting for for this long, and you just going to come in and chop it down, right? So I think these attacks do sort of line up with the, the attacks that have been um, constant. I don't know that they ever go away. I think that they just sort of change shape, form. Mm. You know, they 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 sort of um, meld to whatever the time is. I'm also reminded in Philadelphia in 1988 there was a black superintendent of schools. Um, my a beloved uh, Sara of mine and and people in Philly love her. She's a uh, very much an elder now in her 80s. Um, mm -hmm. Dr. Constance Clayton yes. was the superintendent of schools for 11 years. In 1988, there were some budget issues, and she says, you know, hey y'all, I am go. We we have to be mindful of those who've been historically privileged. Mm. When I make that, that was her. That was a direct quote. Mm. When she made the cuts, she said, you know, I'm going to protect the people who have not been historically privileged. And so then she starts getting death threats, mm, mm -hmm. right? Because she had the nerve to say, I want to make sure um, the people who have been the most marginalized and who have been the most harmed by cuts we've already done, that we're going to preserve them, right? Mm. Um, and then the person who follows her up sort of charges the the, the legislature is racist, right? And it's mm, right as he does. Mm -hmm. like, you know, you can't really call the people racist and then be like, so write me a check. That's not, you know, how it works. Right. Um, so I do feel like this is just another moment mm. uh, in these folks feeling like they're losing ground in the battle to maintain uh, the supremacy of whiteness in this country. Yeah. And and I, I really like that you bring in the, the intertwined nature of um, trying to call out, you know, structural racism, system, systematic racism, systemic racism, and economics, and particularly have the, the intertwined nature of those things can, can cause, particularly when we think about um, the system like the P through 12 system, how it can, can cause some very tricky um, maneuvering 
for for school leaders and and, and school poli- uh, educational politicians and things of that nature. Yeah, I mean that's a perfect segue to the next question. Um, Khadija, you are a school board president, so I know that these uh, attacks and this current movement has impacted your particular work uh, in, a, in a unique way. Can you talk a little bit more about what your life has been like uh, <laughs> as a president <laughs> in, the, in this time? You know, uh, it's, it's definitely been, been a challenging time. Well, first of all, I think we have to call out, you know, just the challenging time that we are in because of the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. And when folks are in uh, challenging times, when we are in financially challenging times, uh, that oftentimes leads to other social problems as well. And so uh, right now in education, we are uh, definitely in the battle of, you know, the pandemic and trying to ensure that our, our schools remain open. You know, the COVID cases in California are pretty challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are also uh, in this social challenge uh, as we think about critical race theory, as we think about uh, the ri- uprising that happened um, back in 2020 mm-hmm. with the murdering of George Floyd. George Floyd, um, Floyd. And here in Berkeley Unified School District, we decided that we weren't going to... Um, to to be stagnant or we weren't going to uh, just you know put up uh, a symbol or a sign that says we stand for black lives we decided uh, to do something that has never been done before mm. and we decided to create a black lives matter black lives matter resolution um, that did something that was unprecedented which was gave almost a million dollars towards uh, ensuring that our Black and African American students had better educational opportunities, mm. and and that although um, it is necessary, especially in during during this time, it is also uh, a, a challenge to our community, especially with our community members who uh, feed to this idea of white supremacy and um, anti Blackness, and who did not want to see that happen mm-hmm. for our students. Well, in that Black Lives Matter resolution, not only did it allocate you know, the funds to, to educating our students well. What it also did uh, is it pushed us to ensure that we have cl- critical uh, race theory at the forefront of our education and also in pushing our educators to have culturally responsive pedagogy. And then what it did, uh, this is very scary, but we, we it needed to happen, <laughs> is it changed the names of schools uh, that bear the names of enslavers and we are the Mm. first school district in the nation to change the name of a school that had a president united states president um on it so we changed Mm. the names of both thomas jefferson school and we're in the process of changing the name of the school that was formerly called george washington elementary school here in berkeley Mm. now doing all of those things are really great and it's exciting and it's necessary but it also sparked um, an oppression Olympics in our in our mm, community, mm. Um, where we saw those who wanted to keep you know white supremacy in our community, uh, mainly our you know white families, but also folks who wanted to be white adjacent. We began mm. to get those attacks uh, from them as well. And now, just to to paint the picture for you, when we talk about Berkeley Unified School District, Berkeley Unified School District is the first school district to desegregate our schools without a school without a court order, right? Mm. Berkeley Unified School District also has the first and one of the only Black and African American Studies departments for a as a 
K through 12 school district housed at Berkeley High School um, that was created in 1968. Mm. So we are a city who is used to being progressive. We are a city who is used, who's been saying Black Lives Matter since the beginning of time. But because we are in a time that is so socially challenging, the mm. uproar from our community has been like never before. So we've, we've done these things before and we've, uh, we've created these avenues before, but we haven't experienced the backlash like this. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm sure you wouldn't believe it unless you saw it, but the emails that I got, not just mm. from people in Berkeley, but from around the nation mm. um, telling us that we are crazy and that we um, are changing history for the worst of the mm. that we're the ones who are, um, racist and creating um, racist avenues. It's been really uh, mind-blowing, especially because I thought we were in a place in our country where we were much further uh, than this. And so those are, that just speaks to, you know, what's currently happening in our school district. It also speaks to, you know, a little bit of the historical perspective of what we've been through um, and how, although 2022 is very different than 1968. Some of the same challenges mm-hmm. uh, we are seeing seeing today. Oh, that's really, really insightful. So, so thinking about um, what everyone has shared and, and the different perspectives um, and what's been going on, we want to think about what, you know, I think sometimes people feel kind of helpless. Like, what, what, what do we do with all of this? Um, so we want to um, ask our guests, uh, what actions must must be taken to ensure that racially and ethnically minoritized and marginalized students do have equitable opportunities for a humanizing educational experience? I think that's an interesting, very interesting question. Um, and honestly, I, I feel like it, it uh, the way to do that is, there are some people who will tell you policy changes, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. I am not going to tell you that because I feel like far too often um, it creates a lot of chatter and policy mm. changes like like uh, the names of the buildings changing, I think are important, but also are often symbolic. Mm-hmm. And the policies still have to be implemented by people who may be operating under, you know, the framework mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Trying to get around. And so. From my perspective, honestly, I feel like how you you create opportunities for minoritized students oftentimes is by being subversive and and mm. doing things that people don't necessarily know you're doing. But um, <laughs> the meeting after the meeting, <laughs> in whatever way you have to do it. Mm-hmm. I think being sub uh, sub Sorry. being subversive is good. Um, I agree with that. Um, I also, I guess. I'm rethinking the question, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, it is about uh, racially minoritized, you know, students receiving an equitable education, but equitable to me means not only addressing uh, students of color, right? But also addressing white students Mm -hmm. because students of color are experiencing these things at the hand, you know, uh, of white people. Um, uh, white teachers or, you know, white classmates whose parents, you know, are um, uh, teaching them, you know, problematic uh, ideologies at a young age. And so, you know, 
I, I vacillate back and forth with this um, idea around, you know, educating white people. Um, I, uh, when I was at Indiana University, I did the White Racial Literacy Project, you know, and a lot of that pushback was, you know, well, why is white in it, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, because when we look at who's engaging in violence, when we look at who's, you know, creating these policies, when we look at all of these things, it's primarily white people. And that's not to say there aren't some people of color represented, right, but right. Uh, it's primarily white people. It's primarily um, white supremacist ideologies that are are guiding mm -hmm. um, many of the decisions and actions. And so to me, equitable is about addressing, you know, both sides, right? It mm -hmm. is ensuring that we have uh, uh, practices, policies, um, opportunities for racially minoritized groups, but also how do we address the people who, you know, are um, engaging in the acts that are requiring us to think about equity mm -hmm. um, or mm -hmm. requiring us to be more actionable about equity. And, and so we can, again, we can address the students, we can try to bring equity as much as possible, um, but I don't know that it dismantles, mm. you know, white supremacy. I don't know that it dismantles white supremacist ideologies. And so uh, in terms of humanizing, I think it's really important, you know, if it's in a classroom environment where we're learning, it's, it's okay. I think it's, I think it's important mm -hmm. to teach children how to talk about race right yeah, yeah. it's okay to say white it's mm -hmm. okay to say white you know and when we say this, we're not attacking it, it is about education it is about the language we're using right. and part of the issue and why i think it's such a hard um there's, there's so much resistance is because people don't you know they don't understand we in in academia we use certain language and you know those right. sorts of things um, but I think there are ways of translating these more complex ideas mm, that mm -hmm. we talk about at a more localized level, right? Everybody mm. don't get a PhD, you know, I have opportunities to do a master's degree and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but how do we help people? How do we translate, you know, our research and scholarship so that it is one more accessible, that it's understandable, um, yeah, I, I and 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 I, I think I think it might have been you, Dr. Royal. S somebody said something about things happening, you know, in, in cycles, right? Mm -hmm. This is sort of the engagement that we'll be doing for the rest of our mm -hmm. lives, right? Mm -hmm. If we if we're looking at this from a critical race perspective or, or being racial realist, then yeah. we know, yeah. that, you know, this doesn't go away. You know, it sort of uh, morphs and uh, becomes something else. Mm -hmm. But I am constantly thinking about the fact that it's not you know it wasn't uh the little rock nine right who needed mm. education right. it was yeah. the random white yeah. kids chasing them spitting you know like that's where the education needed to be situated right. but it's hard to do that I guess unless you're being subversive but it's hard to do that when there's standards and you know all of these things right. that prevent it the other sister wanted to respond but I have a question for you then about something, I want to circle back to that. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so um, that that's kind of where I am. But the, the other piece about, you know, sort of educating white students, white colleagues, that sort of thing, which it really did, you know, it, it increased around the time of um, 
uh, George Floyd's murder. Mm. But um, somehow white supremacy makes it labor that's mm-hmm. placed upon the oppressed. <laughs> my, you know, race <laughs> my door, yeah. my door time group. Uh, and so, you know, that's sort of the space I'm in. Like, I certainly want to do things that create equitable uh, environments and equitable outcomes and that uh, unapologetically address race and racism. But I'm also being very conscious of the fact mm-hmm. uh, around, again, another idea that uh, it, within critical race theory, this idea around self-preservation yeah, and how as, you know, a Black woman who you know, the lineage of Black women has always been around labor, right? Like, how do I, you know, preserve myself, right? And so I think people have to make different, uh, make choices that feel good to them in in terms of how they're actionable. If you have the energy and the capacity to engage with white colleagues and teachers and students, you know, no matter what you're doing, then by all means, but, but I'm also not committed to killing myself today. That's right. That's right. So that's, yeah. I think for for me, it also, um, I agree with both um, what you said, Dr. Royal, and what you also uh, offered, Dr. Davis. And I think for me, just from an, an education perspective in K through 12, I think to answer your um, question, Felicia, we have to first be honest about what is happening um, in our school districts before we can even talk about race and access to uh, curriculum and access to content. We have to talk about um, the the structures and symbols that many school districts um, have that uphold a legacy of racism, that uphold Mm -hmm. a legacy of oppression, Mm -hmm. that uphold a legacy of exclusion and inequality. And that is, you know, of course, in our policies, but it's also in our protocols and it's also in our procedures and it's also in our practices. Um, Mm -hmm. And these institutionalized injustices um, are not what students are reading from a textbook. It's what ex- they are experiencing as soon as yes. they step foot on a school campus, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So it's the student that can't uh, access curriculum or content because they're suspended at disproportionate rates in comparison yes. yeah. to their yeah. you know, counterparts of other races. It's the student that is constantly sent to the hallway or to the office because their quote unquote behavior does not fit the culture of power, you know, in their in their classroom or in their school campus. And I'm probably going to ruffle a couple of feathers, but uh, with this next comment that I'm going to say, but it's these injustices that are that are really criminal. Right. Mm. And that have a direct impact on our student outcomes, mm-hmm. um, because we know that kids cannot learn unless they are in the seats. But we have this culture in our uh, in our schools that push them out of the seats. Mm. So before we even can talk about race and we can talk about racism, we can talk about, you know, critical race theory or uh, or or what has happened in the past that informs our decisions of today, we have to talk about the criminalization in our classrooms first mm. that is happening, um, especially to our Black and African-American students, specifically mm-hmm. our, our Black males. But these are the things that are true crimes, right? These are the injustices mm. that that really should be banned um, and not, you know, not that critical part. race theory, but dismantling these, these barriers. Dr. Royale, I know you you had a, yeah, you a, a burning. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's interesting because um, as I'm listening, to you talk about you know the the sort of structures that perpetuate um, this harm. As someone who does try to humanize, and I'm, I'm listening to Dr. Um, Patton Davis, and I'm thinking about um, an incident I had with a white student mm. 
who is a senior, a ma- he's a male student, um, but is taking a graduate, was taking a graduate class mm. and uh, the foundations of education. And so I'm teaching about what this particular night forms of racism. And um, his classmates, uh, you know, were on Zoom and in the chat and one of his classmates made a comment that he called racist and his white classmates sort of start getting him together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And in some ways it's like, yes, this is what I want to have. <laughs> Do it. But then he starts crying. Mm-hmm. He starts crying. And so met with him after class, you know, cause I'm like, I'm sorry, you're upset. You know, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm sorry, you're upset. Y'all have a good evening. But the next day, (laughs) he says that um, he suggests I take this class session out of my future. um, Oh, 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 yes, honey. (laughs) That um, that my definition of racism violates um, our university's policy and Hmm. um, President Obama's definition of racism. How did Barack get into this? Yeah, oh, honey, I don't know, but you know, anytime, and anytime people <laughs> want to talk about the, you know, the liberals or the progressives, they bring out the centrists to mm-hmm. like them, right? And so it became this really long sort of thing. Now, I, I'm like, okay, I love this, right? So I'm a scholar, and he's telling me he my definition violates this, that, and the other, and I'm like, oh, okay. But the reason why I'm thinking about it now is because I I refer it to the program director for the graduate students. And ultimately he says to them, um, I'm having, uh, I'm stressed out. I'm having a mental health issue. And so I can't come talk to nobody mm. about this, mm. this email I sent, right? Um, and he did say he was having a mental health issue. Now my sister, who is assistant vice president of something, student success or something at um, Michigan <laughs> State was like, now hold on, because now I feel like they, they didn't have him come in and talk to anybody. And she was like, I think they're putting you at danger by not following up with this young person. Mm. Right? Now, I followed the process for the university. Mm. Mm-hmm. But nothing was done with this. And I'm not, and my th- position isn't like put him out, but I'm right. like, hey guys, this is, this is a problem. This is weird, right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to write off students like him. Mm. But I also have, this is why I usually don't follow the university processes because they don't do anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whereas I wasn't thinking this is someone who may actually end up trying to do something to cause me harm my sister who's a university you know administrator in a different capacity was thinking are you being safe are you safe mm-hmm. yeah for your safety in this regard so it's just you know something I want I wrestle with mm-hmm. yeah I mean I think that's really um interesting to think about as black educators right the that um in in certain spaces and places, what we do is dangerous. It is right. It's dangerous for us, um, and we have to. We are in systems who, you know, ultimately don't value our bodies, and so we have to think about how do we protect ourselves when the system won't protect us. You know, when the system won't protect us, and when white fragility is being used as a weapon at as an all time. Mm-hmm. Because that's really Dr. Royal. That's that's really what it was, right? White fragility was was used to weaponize what you were teaching and and putting you at danger and at risk. And 
that happens so many times, even, you know, I'm always going back to K through 12 education, but I can tell you the times where, you know, I was a student or I've seen plenty of students and they talk about their experience in the classroom, right? They talk about the inability to have access to the content. And, and what happens is the teacher who is supposed to be the truth teller in that situation, because they have not done their job or because uh, they didn't provide access to the student, then it becomes the waterworks, right? Which mm. then changes the narrative. And then we focus on the student's behavior and and, and why, uh, you know, all of these other aspects that are not important to the main point at hand. And in mm. education, we are constantly being put in a place where we have to continue to be truth tellers, but also call out those moments of white fragility that, that are incredibly dangerous. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. Yeah, but as you know, Dr. Davis alluded to earlier, we have to put put our mask on first um, and make decisions about which moments do we intervene. Mm-hmm. Felicia knows this. I had a situation with a student who harassed me and another black colleague at my last institution, and the school university refused to see it as a race issue, that it was sort of ideological. You have these hmm. uh, liberal, radical professors who are teaching these ideologically laden issues and conservative student. We met with everyone from the behavioral threat management team to affirmative action, chief diversity officer, dean, provost, et cetera. And they refused to see our humanity as educators who weren't even teaching diversity classes, teaching just <laughs> core right. you know, classes. And it is dangerous. And we have to make decisions about how do we preserve ourselves uh, and the consequences of it for our physical health, our spiritual health, uh, emotional health, and so forth. So one of the things that we were excited about um, is the range of professional orientations and uh, positions that you all have. And, and we were sort of thinking about, like, what does it mean to effectively partner and work with folks who are on the ground uh, in school districts leading? And, and, and how do we leverage our scholarship in ways that, um, that, that, that support um, and, and give you all what you need to, to fight against the attacks that are happening right now? I'll start because I probably have uh, this very new weirdness. So there's a (laughs) June 16th that was the first day for the new superintendent of schools in Philadelphia. Mm. And uh, on Monday, he announced his transition team. And so I am one of the leaders. Ooh, we love it. Well, Um, maybe we don't. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But but I'm still talking about Philly, right? And Mm -hmm. I feel very fit because there was a lot of chatter in the news about who's doing what. And my line sister was like, well, just prepare for people to drag you when your name is announced. And I was like, oh drag gosh. what? Drag who? <laughs> that's, that's the Philly who I know. That? I was going to say, you real Philly, Dr. That's, that's, that's the Philly I know. I'm <laughs> up here to do some work. I'm a, I graduated high school in that district. I, I did all this research. But don't come over here talking soup. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't, I ain't starting problems with nobody. But if you start them, you know, I may have to finish it. Cardi so. B said, who going to do what to who? Who going to attack me, boo? Now she say, she going to do what or who? Let's find out and see. Cardi B, you know where I'm at. You know where I be. You win the club. Just to party. I'm there. I get paid a fee. I be in and out them bank so much. I know they tired of me. But the, the thing for me, when I first saw the list of who the people would be on the different committees, it actually, it, it incensed me to a degree. Mm. You know, you have people who don't know the city who are placing people and they're talking to, mm. who may not have context. And so I'm sitting there like, 
well, this is an interesting name. This person in the 90s, he, you know, he was a young person on the school board and he actually, as a Latinx person, uh, partner switched his allegiance from the black members of the board to Ooh. the white members of the board, seeing who would put him on the board. And then in 2013, when he was the president of the state appointed, uh, state taken over um, school district, right, the, the school reform commission, he helped to close 30 schools and to bust the union contract, right? You you took away nurses and three children died. So how many kids have to die? Like, well, how many schools do you have to close for somebody to say, actually, mm-hmm. you're a don't want your opinion in this process, but y'all got mm-hmm. him on this list, mm. right? Or me saying, why are there two charter people on my one committee and I don't have anybody from comprehensive neighborhood schools uh, represented on this committee? Mm. Right? That's how I see myself partnering with people in the district um, by, and not, they're like, oh, well, we're waiting on somebody from, you know, the district headquarters to populate the list. And I'm like, sweetie, this is my home. Let me get on the phone. I'm going to call a couple <laughs> people. Like, y'all, we have this anti-racist district culture committee. Mm-hmm. I need folks from the Philly Student Union, like mm-hmm. these folks to come down here and participate um, in this. That's how I see my role and my contribution. Now, ultimately, I don't know, you know, what will come of it, but, but I'm in it. And I'm doing my best to center the people who often get shut out mm-hmm. um, of the conversations and of the work. Mm. You know, I, I think in my role, it, it's a little different um, being a department chair. So uh, as y'all know, um, I have to follow university policy, <laughs> everything, right? right. Um, and I do that, of course, but I'm also thinking about what are the ways I can interpret that policy mm-hmm. so that it mm. does lead to, you know, equitable um, outcomes. Um, But one of the things I think is really cool um, about the college and uh, our relationships uh, with uh, local schools is uh, what uh, our Dean, uh, uh, Dean Don Pope Davis has done. And so we have this thing called superintendents and residents, right? And so these uh, superintendents uh, uh, collaborate uh, with my department, with our uh, Department of Teaching and Learning uh, to do programs, to do uh, professional development, uh, to do grants. And so uh, I've seen some really uh, great things happening. But for me, what I am often thinking about from a department chair standpoint is what's going on with the education. You know, how are we preparing mm-hmm. graduate students? How are we preparing, you know, future school leaders, principals, superintendents? And so mm-hmm. uh, my emphasis work-wise is often around, you know, well, what are the aspects of the curriculum that, you know, mm-hmm. address this, you know, who is in the classroom offering their perspective, you know, who, who are we hiring? Like mm-hmm. all of those pieces, mm-hmm. because I think it shapes decisions that people make uh, in terms of, you know, the curriculum yeah. style, um, and if the work is going to be learner centered. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, from my own personal standpoint, you know, I uh, am very open and it's hard to respond to this question now because I'm so new here, but <laughs> trying to do things that engage the larger community. So, you know, I, not as a department chair, but as Lori, you know, when um, Makaya Bryant was killed, you know, mm-hmm. trying to, you know, create some sort of uh, space 
because there wasn't one to just sort of process and talk about what happened, right? right. And so I reached out to the um, superintendent of Columbus City Schools, right? Mm. And she was like, okay. And so she brought her whole team onto a Zoom call and we ended up having, you know, uh, this event that really, I think, uh, opened people's minds around what happened because what we had going was a lot of rhetoric around, well, she did this. And it was mm-hmm. always like the victim, right? Um, right. You know, why, why was this happening? And, you know, what was she doing there and what, you know, mm-hmm. and so um, I try as best I can to um, plan things that um, bring people together, that offer some clarity to disrupt some of the common ways that we think about um, uh, children, how we think about education, um, yeah, and I just, you know, I'm hoping to do more Um in the future. Mm-hmm. Now I'm all deep into everything that Dr. Davis and Dr. Royal is saying, and I'm gonna ask you to repeat the question again. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess one way to reframe the question is, you know, how can education researchers and scholars support what you're doing on the ground and, and, right. and ca- help counter what you're experiencing in the attacks uh, from the public? Yeah. You know, I think uh, Dr. Davis probably hit the nail right on the head uh, with her comment earlier. Um, about uh, our responsibility really to uh, educate and empower those who are in front of our young people. Mm. Um, And so I think oftentimes I think back to uh, my teacher preparation program um, and how I got my first D on a paper um, because we were uh, watching, we were tasked with watching um, a lesson that a teacher was giving um, and we were supposed to write a response about it and you know what we what we noticed and the uh, the teaching practices that we we were learning in our teacher preparation program we're supposed to call those out as we saw them in the lesson well I took it upon my um very opinionated self to, of course, do what the task asked me to do, but to push it a little further and uh, call out how there was no culturally responsive teaching in the classroom, how Mm. the the teacher ignored the Black students in the classroom, how there was no focus on bringing um, or giving access to everyone in the classroom to have the codes of power that were happening there. Um, In my in my lesson reflection, I also uh, called out how in the class I also did not receive any training about how to educate my Latinx students, mm, um, my mm-hmm. ELD students, absolutely, but not my Latinx students, not my Black and African-American scholars, not my AAPI scholars. And mm-hmm. so, of course, all of those opinionated things led me to get a very bad grade on my paper. However, <laughs> it taught me something. Um, and of course, you know, I went through the entire process to rebuttal the decision you you know how that goes Mm -hmm. you all are uh, educators so I'm sure you've had students do that same thing (laughs) but uh, what it taught me is that our preparation programs the um the content that we were looking at was set up to support one idea and that idea is that white is right Mm. um and so as an educator, I knew it was wrong, but how many other educators do not have that uh, that truth-telling background, that do not mm-hmm. have access to the same um, ideas in the same way that, you know, I was brought up in my same um, thinking? How many 
teaching, I mean, teachers do are not metacognitive, right? They're not thinking about what they are thinking or thinking about what they are being taught or thinking about what they are saying. Um, and led me to believe that we have to be very intentional about who we're putting in front of our students, but also about what we are filling them with, what we are mm, teaching them, mm -hmm. what we are educating them, what we are giving them access to. Um, and so for researchers, that's my call on you. That's my plug to you. Please, yeah. when you are doing your research, when you are um, creating content, when curriculum is being created, let's do it in a way that changes the narrative, that shifts the narrative, that puts those who are always on the back burner, meaning Black and African American students, our SPED learners, our Latinx learners, that pushes them forward, puts them at the center of the work, at the center of the curriculum, center mm -hmm. of the content, mm -hmm. so that we can ensure that we change our society. It's so interesting to me that we've been singing the same songs of revolution we've been singing the same songs of um of uh the same songs of civil rights for decades and decades but still having the same experience um i i think that for me is what i need to be able to do uh, the work that we are here doing on there with our boots on the ground here in education um it definitely is our responsibility to ensure that we have policies um, that are reflective of the needs of our community but our schools are only as good as the teachers that we are able mm. to fill them with. Mm -hmm. So we have to prepare and empower teachers in a better way. So I'm calling on y'all to help me do that. <laughs> no, that's great. And I think I think ultimately what I what I'm hearing, Ray, is that um it, it takes all of us working together and communicating and and strategically working as a network to dismantle these systems that are creating these inequities. Um, and and harming ultimately our students and our and our communities and and I think often, particularly I know in higher education, when we talk about networking, it's only to benefit ourselves. But we don't necessarily talk about creating networks as strategic um, kind of advances to dismantle things mm -hmm. and to deconstruct Material and reconstruct. Changes. Yeah. So and and I, I was really excited about this conversation because I also think we don't talk enough about that connection between what's happening in higher education and what's happening in P through 12. And we're all fighting together and we should be fighting together and we working ought to be. together. So. Mm -hmm. so as we wrap up, we have a question that we ask all of our guests and that is how are you finding and or creating joy these days? Or are you? Well, someone's on sabbatical, so I, that sounds right. very joyous. Sounds joyful to me. I'm, I'm finding joy in <laughs> you joy. being on sabbatical. So, in the early days of COVID, I uh, in 2020, in September of 2020, I was very blessed to be able to buy my first home. Congratulations! Woo! That's amazing. Thank you. And my house honestly brings me joy mm. because. I spent, I never knew because I, I never owned a home. I never really cared about, I grew up in a, in a house that my parents worked hard for. That just, just wasn't part of my thing mm -hmm. until COVID hit and I had to stay in my little one bedroom apartment and I was like, <laughs> the devil is a liar. <laughs> this is too small. But being here has given me joy because I plot on little like things mm. that I want, like, you know what? I think this room needs some wallpaper. Let me mm -hmm. go on a search yeah. for just being able to be creative. Um, in that way, brings me a lot, just endless joy. 
Mm-hmm. Like y'all can't even imagine how much time I spend looking at uh, swatches. <laughs> <laughs> but I never would have thought about. So it's um, it's what does it for me right now. Nice. Yes. I've done it, you know, with travel, um, taking time out. Uh, um, when I do travel to disconnect my email from my phone. Mm. Like um, I find that it, uh, in this administrative role, I'm always looking at my, you know, mm-hmm. anytime I hear the email, I hear the chime, uh, instead of just turning the notification off, I take it off the phone uh, so that it helps me to be more present, you know, in the mm-hmm. moment. Uh, and that has been significant. Um accepting the fact that no is a full sentence mm. uh, has been really powerful for me. Um, so I've said no to a lot. I've said, I still say yes to things, but I've said mm. no to a lot uh, and have gotten past this idea of disappointing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, when people ask you to do something and they're, you know, coming to you specifically, you know, because they like what you do or something like that. Yeah. And you want to engage, but realize you're at capacity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just being, you know, saying no uh, a lot has has been really joyful for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, just spending time uh, with family uh, and reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm good for binge watching something. Yeah. So um, <laughs> I love, because I love, my other love is film. And so being mm-hmm. able to escape and go into a different uh, world or um a different space is what mm-hmm. really helps me um to just kind of escape and focus on things that I like and find my own little space of joy. Wonderful. Um first I want to appreciate the question. Um I think that we don't spend enough time thinking about or talking about joy and what brings us joy, especially in this work. Mm-hmm. Um right, right now I'm uh, preparing some some work around Godi Muhammad's uh, framework around cultivating genius, and so mm-hmm. she says that there are you know five pursuits around identity, skill development, um, intellectualism, criticality, and then the final one is joy, and that you cannot do anything in the classroom without having joy. So I appreciate mm-hmm. um, that question around joy, and so what brings me joy uh, is knowing that I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. Mm-hmm. I am what my ancestors prayed for, what they prepared for, what they fought for, what they sacrificed for, what they died for brings me joy. And being able to to live in that uh, brings me joy. Being able to do things like traveling around the world brings me joy and know, especially in knowing um, that that wasn't accessible to my ancestors always. Being the youngest person ever elected as a president of the school board, that brings me joy knowing that that wasn't always an opportunity, especially when there were legal rights that prevented us from being able to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the things that brings bring me brings me joy in sitting in uh, that gratitude and appreciation of where my life is brings me a lot of joy. Now I'm gonna have to take a page out of Dr. Davis's book and learn how to say no, so, so I can see if I can make more joy sentence. in my life. We all, I'm, I'm in the same boat, so we're gonna, I'm gonna Listen, try to model yeah. after. Uh, Dr. Davis, because I have yes, two. Not... that no is a full and complete sentence. Listen, we can try to come up with extra so, language. We don't need that. Just no, <laughs> period. Well, let me see. And I need to turn, turn that. I let said me what I said. 
<laughs> but those are the things um, that bring me joy. And, and, and finally, knowing that um, the situations that we are in and, and the challenges that are plaguing um, public education um, are not going to last forever and that we are the ones who have been um, we are the ones who, who are called who have been called to action and we are the ones mm. who um, are able to to change the narrative brings me a lot no matter how stressful it is brings me um, a lot of joy well thank you this, this has is bringing me joy brought me a lot of joy <laughs> yes I um uh, we we've been excited about this yes. conversation yes, yes, since yes, it was yes. scheduled and um, it's been everything I could uh, imagine it to be, and and you are all three phenomenal black women, uh, brilliant black women. So um, we are excited to get to be in conversation with you and community with you, and and support you and all the work that you're doing, all the good hard. Um, dismantling work that you're doing um and so uh we'll we um are glad this is part of our our ongoing conversation about humanizing higher education and and thinking about what that looks like and so um me and royale are, are excited to to keep the conversation going thank you all for coming thank you all for listening um and we'll see you soon see you soon Thank you to our guests, Dr. Lori Patton Davis, Khadija Brown, and Dr. Kamika Royal for joining us today and getting us information regarding how scholars, practitioners, educators, and policymakers can work together to debunk misinformed myths and dismantle an equitable education system. At the end of each conversation, we like to engage in a segment called Scholar Soundtrack as we reflect on what musical selections rang in our minds as we think about the day's conversation. Today, the song that came to mind was The Revolution Will Not Be Televised by Gil Scott Heron, because we've got work to do in order to manifest a humanizing educational experience for our communities, and it will be live, in color, and take all of us working together to make it happen. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. Well, that is today's song for our Scholar Soundtrack, and you'll be able to find a playlist of these songs along with the syllabus for today's episode and all of the episodes in the Ash Presidential Podcast series. We're still rolling on. Get ready for another exciting conversation about humanizing higher education next week. I promise you will not want to miss it. Until then, I'm Royale. I'm Felicia. Until next time, keep keep it it human. human.